Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Now some of you may have been part of a little poll I did this week. Uh, So the poll was this question. I asked this question because Jesus started and said this. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world too. Fill in the blank. So I was asking people today uh, over this week, what is the answer that Jesus gave to that question? For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to do what? Most people said that the reason why he came into this world was to die on the cross for our sins, and that clearly is a primary reason why Jesus came here. He came here to rescue people that needed to be rescued. He came here to draw people to God. He came to give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, clearly. But when Jesus was talking to Pilate, he said this, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. And I think you're going to see that as we look through this passage this morning, that Jesus' main ministry was the proclamation and the preaching of the gospel. So I want you to think about this, that Jesus, as he began his earthly ministry here, Mark begins this section by reminding us, right from his very first line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is making a a compelling statement here. He's making an assertion. He's making an assertion here that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then what he's going to do is he's going to spend this first part of this chapter trying to affirm that assertion. He's going to give us several testimonies that are going to affirm that assertion. Look with me here in verse 7. It says, and he preached, saying that after me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And you know who that was. That was John the Baptist. So Jesus Christ is being asserted as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign one, the Son of God, first by the testimony of John the Baptist. We see him also being asserted to be the Son of God through his baptism. Right here in his baptism, what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit coming down upon him like a dove. In verse 10, we have even the voice of the Father saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So it is the testimony of John the Baptist. It is the testimony of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the testimony of the Father. It's even the testimony of the fact that the angels ministered to him in his temptation. See that in verses 12 and 13. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and there in the wilderness he was tempted for 40 days by Satan, and wild animals were there, but the angels ministered to him. So not only is John the Baptist testifying to this, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the angels, but Jesus Christ himself, look in verse 17. He says this, and Jesus said to them, to Peter and uh, Andrew, he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus Christ is making some assertions of who he is, and he is calling them to follow him. 
Now, finally, in this section that we're going to be looking at, verses 21 through 45, we are going to see that there's going to be an assertion of Jesus' authority as the Son of God. We're going to see his authority over demons. We're going to see his authority over disease. We're going to see his authority over death. But it is being supported by his proclamation of the gospel. Read here with me in verse 21 and following. And they went into Capernaum, I should stop there and say this, the they there is Jesus, Simon, who's Peter, and John, and Andrew, and James. The the five of them, at least, are going here to Capernaum. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately, there was an In their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 40, and the lepers came to him, imploring him, kneeling saying to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in a desolate place. And the people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So, Father, today we 
are praying that we will see your son in his glory. Father, as we get a chance to read this section, we see that a demon knew who he was. We see that the people were amazed at his teaching. We see that the crowds were gathering around him, but how many were seeing him as the son of God, the Messiah, the one that was going to die for their sins? No one. How many of them were coming there repentant because they recognized their sin and seeing themselves in light of holiness bent their knee to him? Hardly any of them. So Lord, today I pray that we would not make the same mistake, that we would see your son in all of the authentication of his glory rather than the proclamation of the gospel. Help us to see him today. Help us to savor him. Help us to praise him for what he has done for us. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is a preacher, and he I love getting a chance to preach. Tim, Doug, and I get this opportunity to preach to you. We love being able to open the word and share the word with you. It is a burden that has been placed on our hearts and our lives, and we can't help but preach. And so we love it. But there is a preacher's preacher in the Son of God. He is the one that has granted us scripture through his Holy Spirit. He is the one that scripture is all about. The Old Testament is about Christ. The New Testament is looking back at Christ. It's all about Christ. So when he gets up and preaches, it is something pretty amazing. I'm not completely sure of what he preached on this first time that he went into the synagogue, but I believe it probably goes back to something similar to verse 15. Look back at verse 15 with me for a moment. So Jesus had a basic message, and here's the message. He wanted them to know something, and then he wanted them to follow up and respond in some way. He wants you to know something, and he wants you to respond in a certain way. And look what he says in verse 15. He says this, the time is fulfilled, or it may say in your version, is at hand, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So the time is up now, it's been fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he wants you to know. He wants you to know that the time has come for Christ to come into this world and that the kingdom of God is at hand, it is here with you. So he wants you to know that. But there's a second thing he wants you to do. He wants you to respond to it. He wants you to respond with repentance and belief in the gospel. So in all likelihood, his message pondered those two key points, what he wants you to know and what he wants you to do and respond. And it gets me to wonder this, what is ruling my heart? What is ruling your heart? See, what we are going to find in this section is that what is ruling the people's hearts in their lives was the physical and the earthly. They were looking for freedom from their disease or freedom from demons, maybe even freedom from death. But what was not on people's hearts was the spiritual and the heavenly. This is exactly what Jesus was aiming for. Yes, he provided some level of authentication through the physical healings, but that was to point to the spiritual and heavenly reality that we will all stand before God and have to give an account. And there has to be an answer that we can't provide for ourselves and can only be provided for Christ. So I ask you, who's ruling your life today? Because the reality is if Jesus Christ is not ruling and reigning in your heart, 
either you will be ruling and reigning or somebody else or something else will be ruling and reigning. Who is the authority in your life? I entitled this, Jesus is Able and Willing. You'll see the ability of Jesus Christ, his authority in how he preaches and his authority over demons and death and uh, disease. And then you'll see him willing. A heartbeat of compassion. His desire to come to people and to touch them and to heal them. You have a God today that is able and willing to do amazing things in your life. Will you trust him? Verses 21 through 35 seem to be just one day in the life of Christ. You know, when I look at my calendar, and my calendar sometimes filled up, but it's like what Jesus accomplished in just this one day is utterly amazing. I don't know what you guys accomplish in your one day, but Jesus, wow. He starts with his, the power of Christ over the demons, verses 21 through 28. And in verse 21, we see, and they, who's the they? It's Peter, Simon, and Andrew, and then James and John. These two sets of brothers are the initial followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are here with him. And they went into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is this lakeside community. It's a detachment of Roman soldiers were there. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember the story of the centurion whose child was healed of a sickness by Jesus? Well, that centurion came from Capernaum. So Jesus Christ is here in Capernaum. It is in all likelihood the home of Peter and John Andrew. And it may even be the possible home of James and John. These fishermen are probably here in this city, and that's where this home is. It's a bustling city. It's a pretty cool place to be. There's so much that's going on in Capernaum. And there are synagogues in that town. And synagogues, you needed to have, I believe it was 10 men to make up a synagogue. So there may have been a number of synagogues through this bustling community. It says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately, this is one of John, I'm sorry, one of Mark's favorite words. I think he uses it over 40 times in this gospel, immediately. And what he's doing is he's talking about the constant activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is always on the move. It's his priority. It's his passion to be out there. His life and ministry is to be with the people and to teach the people. Immediately. On the Sabbath. Now, you know the Sabbath is the Jewish worship day. And it's in this Jewish worship day, which began at sundown on Friday and went through sundown on Sunday. And they would come to their church service, their synagogue service. And so they would spend time with their families or they would be there in the synagogue. And it says that they entered the synagogue and he was teaching. The synagogue was this house of worship. It was the people assembled there. They would talk about the Old Testament. There would be some teaching. There would be a set of teachers, no one group of teachers. And at times what they would have are visiting teachers that would come to the area that would get the opportunity to teach and preach. And that's why Jesus had this opportunity to preach to the congregation. And Jesus was teaching. During this synagogue worship time, once again, I'm not sure, we don't know what passage he was preaching on, but I would assume it hit those points that we talked about before, that he wanted them to know that the kingdom of God was at hand and that the the time had come and that he wanted them to repent and believe. So that was clearly the message that was there, but we don't know where he was preaching from. 
I want you to know this, that the word of God is so essential in your life. It needs to be there, that it's this precious gift that God has given you. That book that you hold in your hands is a gift from God to you. Over 40 human authors, over 1,500 years, 66 books of God speaking to you. And so we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. We need to sit under the teaching and preaching of it. And we need to apply it in our lives. It's so important. And this teaching was utterly amazing. I don't think anybody has ever said this about me, that verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. You didn't have to laugh like that. I can't. <laughs> uh, huh. I, I heard it, huh? Okay. And they, the people were astonished. They were amazed. Their minds were blown away by how Jesus taught. Because he taught them as one that they've never heard before, as one who has authority. See, I can get up in a pulpit and I can... I'll give you some quotes from other authors and other pastors. I could try to exposit the word of God. But this passage and this book is about Christ. So when he stood up, it's not just that he's giving you quotes. He is talking about himself as he preaches. Oh, man, that is amazing. He had such boldness in his preaching. He spoke with the authority of God. You know, the Old Testament prophets would say what? Thus says the Lord. Well, it's actually the Lord saying it to you as he's preaching to this congregation in Capernaum. And he said they were astonished because they had not heard anyone teach them with that kind of authority, not as their scribes, not as their teachers. Now, the scribes were the teachers of the law. Your version may say that. These were the experts in interpretation. They, they could interpret the Old Testament law, and they would apply the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees were a religious party. The scribes represented a portion of that, and they were the ones that were professionally skilled at being able to teach. These scribes would oftentimes, and we'll find this as we go through the Gospel of Mark, Oftentimes, these scribes were attacking the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in conflict with him. And in fact, these scribes would line up with the elders and the rulers at the end, and they would claim that Jesus Christ needs to be arrested and put on trial. So these scribes, these teachers of the law that should have been able to see that this is the Son of God, didn't see it. So I want you to see this, that when Jesus Christ spoke, he spoke with authority. But when Jesus Christ spoke, the people were amazed and shocked. But that doesn't mean it's belief. Verse 23, and immediately, Mark's word, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Whenever the penetrating light of the gospel goes out, it is going to have an impact. It will either draw you to Christ in his glory, or it will cause you to be repelled from Christ in his glory. There is no middle ground when it comes to Christ. You will either bend your knee to him, or you will rebel against him. The reality is there is only two paths. 
So the penetrating light of the gospel is shined out in this dark place and sin is exposed. And anger is provoked. It says immediately, there was no delay. After the proclamation of Jesus Christ, after the truth came out, there was this confrontation by the devil, by this demon. It says there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. I spent a lot of time thinking about that this week, sitting among the congregation that I am looking out on. Are there people that are being impacted by Satan today? Being ruled by Satan today? What I was really concerned about was this. As I watched and then looked at this passage, how long had this man been in this church? How many sermons had this man listened to? I don't know if this was his first time in the church or if it was his hundredth time in the church. I hope it's not the hundredth time in the church because if it were, he would have sat under some type of preaching that did nothing to move him. Nothing to provoke him. Nothing to scare him. Until he sat under the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and Revelation 3, verse 9, Jesus called churches the synagogue of who? Satan. May it never be said of the chapel at Warren Valley. How shocking is it that this place of prayer and devotion is a place where the presence of Satan could feel pretty comfortable in this this synagogue? It says a man with an unclean spirit. It can be translated unclean or it can be translated impure, defiled, or evil. He clearly is a demon. Now, you may know this, that the demons are evil angels, and one-third of those angels fell with Lucifer as they rebelled against God. Satan was thrown here, and he becomes the ruler of this world, and the demons become his minions. Demons can take control of a human being. He can control their mind. He can control their hearts. He can control their wills. If you open yourself up to this. Theologians tell us that we have these three mortal enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. I want you to know that what you are hearing outside in this world, you have to interpret in light of God's word because what is being told in this world is wrong. Godless. Christless. Wordless. You cannot believe it. But that's not only the enemy that we have. We have Satan, who's, who's a great enemy. One author said it this way, don't underestimate the power of Satan. He is your most formidable foe, but don't ever overestimate him. Don't make him the decision maker in your life. Because the third mortal enemy that we have is our flesh. 
We have a sin nature that lives within us. Even as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you have a nature of sin that is within you. You will either feed your spiritual nature in Christ or you will feed your flesh. Whoever you feed is going to have greater control in your life. And Paul tells us in in Galatians that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh to keep you from doing the things that you should do. So this is great battle that is happening. I want you to know that the flesh, your internal enemy, hates God because you have aligned yourself to him. So it, this demon, verse 23, cries out. It's funny that as you watch these demons, they often do this shrieking in front of Christ. The proclamation is there and they just can't take it. Because it's a confrontation between light and darkness and between holiness and unholiness. Verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Anytime the word Nazareth is used with Jesus' name, it was, it was a, a form of derision. It's like, you, what could come from Nazareth? You remember Nathaniel asked that? What good could come out of Nazareth? What have you to do with us? Seems to be a rhetorical question. One commentator actually said this, that the demons seem to be saying, mind your own business and get out of my face. It wouldn't be surprising when you think of a demon thinking so terribly about Christ. The demon says here, what have you to do with us? I want you to note that there could have been other demons in this man Or maybe there were other demons in the synagogue, but there are clearly other demons in this city. He is speaking about us. And then you see some good theology, believe it or not, from a demon. Watch what he says. Have you come to destroy us? Well, the demons knew clearly, as it says in Matthew 25, verse 41. In Matthew 25, verse 41, it says this, if I can find it. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his, what? Angels. So this demon knew that there was going to be a day when they were going to be facing the judgment of God. And they're saying, are you coming now to destroy us? Not bad theology. Even pretty good theology next. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Watch the definitive article. The Holy One of God. I love the passage in Isaiah where it goes, Holy, Holy, Holy. The only character quality of God that is raised to the third degree. Holy, Holy, Holy. The Holy One of God. But don't miss this word here that he just said. He says, I, what? Know who you are. So, what a confession. What a reality. This demon says, I know you, God. You are the Holy One of God. He, in essence, is testifying, like Mark began his gospel, testifying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But he says, I know you. 
But what the demon knew was intellectual information. There was no heart transformation. And that's a fearful thing for us as, believe, as people today. That you can sit in a church, you can go to Bible studies... I would say the vast majority of Americans know what Christmas is. We celebrate it to celebrate Christ's birth. And I would bet you that the vast majority of Americans would know that we celebrate Easter or Resurrection Sunday because that is the day that Jesus Christ apparently rose from the dead. They may say apparently, but they know the information. But it's not enough. If you look in James chapter 2, it's not even that the demons believe it, but they are moved emotionally. They shudder. It's not enough to know the information. It's not even enough to be moved by that information. You need to bend your knee and trust the God that that information is telling them, and they would not. The people were amazed and shocked. The demons were aroused and scared, but no one is repenting. Jesus is infinite, absolutely pure, transcendent, and majestic. He's perfect in all of his ways, and no one is bending their knee to him. It's sad to see those that hold a grudging belief about who God is, but will never submit to him. They could have perfect theology, but no bended knee. And they will not go to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 25. Watch Jesus' authority. Jesus rebuked him. And he said, be silent. Jesus shows his authority not only in his preaching, but Jesus is now going to show his authority in his handling of this demon. Be quiet. Strong. Jesus, in essence, is saying, don't interrupt me. I am God. And not only does he say, be quiet, in essence, shut up. Come out. I was looking at the commentaries, and they call this an uh, exorcism. This is not an exorcism. You ever see those exorcisms where they have to do these cantations and it's like, you know, they spend hours really trying to fight this demon to come out? That did not happen here. Jesus says, come out, and what did the demon do? He came out. Jesus says, be quiet, and the demon did what? He was quiet because he exercising authority. This is your God. Verse 26, the unclean spirit, now wanting to show some level of control, convulses him and cries out with a loud voice. It is the demon speaking through this man. And he came out of him. Immediately. Verse 27, can you imagine if this was happening up front? I mean, we'd be looking at each other like, what in the world just happened? It's like, Verse 27, they were all amazed. They were amazed upon amazed. They were amazed at his preaching. Now they're amazed at him talking to demons. And they're amazed at the control that he has over demons. Because he is able, because he is the authority. And they question themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even demons, unclean spirits, and they obey him. The, the people are amazed. The demons are scared. 
No one is worshiping Christ. Verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions. What fame? You know, this is exactly, I mean, isn't that what most pastors today think that they want? They want, you know, football stadium congregations and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people following you. Isn't that really what you want? Don't you want that healing ministry where people are driving in and this is exciting. But it wasn't Jesus' priority. Now immediately after that, verse 29, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. So Simon has a home there in Capernaum with James and John. Now I don't know if that means that James and John were living in Simon and Andrew's home uh, or if James and John came along, not sure. Um, But what I can see here is that Jesus is right on the move. This is the same day, fast-paced, active life, ceaseless activity. And he entered, and the setting is Simon's home. And we see that Jesus Christ is now confronted with a situation. Verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, was ill with a fever. So Peter's married. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. It talks about the fact that his wife actually used to go with him on some of his missionary trips. So Peter is there with his wife, and his wife's mother lives with them. And in all likelihood, his wife's mother is a widow because it doesn't speak of the, fa- uh, the husband. So his mother is living, her mother is living with Peter and his wife. And now she lays ill with a fever. Luke tells us that this is a high fever. Now, a fever always tells us that there is something happening underneath the surface. You have the fever, but there is something, an infection or something that is going through there. And if any of you have ever had a fever, it saps you of energy. It takes you down. The fatigue, you just can't even get up. She can't even get up out of the bed. And then it says this, and immediately they told him, Christ, about her. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, is that they actually ask him to help her. Great. And you know what this does for me? This reminds me of this. One little punch to do or encouragement. On Wednesday nights and on Friday nights, we have a prayer meeting that's virtual. And I would encourage you to be part of it. In essence, this is a form of intercessory prayer because what did they do? They took a need of a family member to Christ. And that's what we do in a prayer service, right? We take our needs to Christ. And I'd encourage you, if you're available, meet with us. Pray with your other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come together uh, as we work together because we have a God who can do amazing things. So, so Peter uh, and John and James and, An- uh, James and Andrew bring their request to Jesus. And then it says in verse 31, And he came and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. I love this. It's just so precious how Jesus does this. He came to her. She couldn't come to him. He took her by the hand. We're going to see Jesus do this often where he he grabs people, he touches people, he is connected with them. He touches them. And then he lifted her up and once again 
the fever left her. Now, I don't get sick very often, but when I have gotten sick and I got that fever, I tell you, you know, I may look at the thermometer and it's like the fever, well, it's down, it's gone, but my energy is sapped. It still takes me another day or two to actually feel strong enough. The utter power that Christ has over demons and the utter power that Christ has over disease is seen in this. The fever left her, and then what did it do? What's the resulting aspect? She got up and served them. She had so much strength. She was not just, we just took the fever down. No, Jesus healed her. That's the power of Christ. Because God is able to do amazing things. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. They were a number of them. The whole city was gathered together and they were at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons, once again, authority, to even speak for they knew him. I just want to do a quick offshoot here for a moment. I want you to think about this, that there are so many people today that are struggling with fear. They're struggling with fear over um, a disease that, um, or a virus, whatever this thing is, that is running throughout our world. They're struggling today that even the president of the United States can come down with this virus. And I don't know what your thoughts about the president are, but we as a people should be praying for him and his family, okay? We should be praying for all that have this disease and this problem because we want to see this thing eradicated. But oftentimes when people fear, what they do is that they will look for every possible remedy to solve their problem. And the fear will oftentimes lead to control, and the control will oftentimes lead to anger. And that's what I'm seeing today. That people have such fear today for their lives that they're trying to control situations, and there is great anger that is coming out in their lives. And the problem is, is I think it's a fear of death, a fear of dying. I need you to know that it is appointed unto man once to die and every and then after that the judgment. Every single one of us, no matter how much you fight against disease, and you should, but even if you do all of that, that does not guarantee life everlasting. At least on this earth. It doesn't. We're all gonna die. You could fight for spiritual physical life, but what Jesus is saying is this. You fight for spiritual, physical life, but you're missing the greatest problem, your spiritual life. How many people do I know that spend hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and they will go all over the place to find a physical healing, but they cannot find time to get into a church service to get spiritual healing? Just tells us a little bit about their priorities. We need to be compassionate for those that are hurting, and, and Jesus was. And Jesus met the needs of those people. But I'm asking you, some of you sit here and fear COVID. Some of you fear race relations. Some of you fear election results. 
all of this is happening because it's supposed to drive us to the person and the work of Christ and Christ alone. No vaccine is going to save us. No political leader is going to save us. No power struggle is ever going to save us. The only one that will save us is Christ. Okay, all right, I got to get moving here. Um, I love verse 35. The Lord Jesus has been giving us his, his sermon and then he's been showing his power over demons. He's showing us now his power over disease. But now he's given us his personal prayer life. Verse 35, just a simple prayer time. What does he say? He says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed out of the desolate place, and there he prayed. I don't know about you, but preaching, I don't know, you can ask Tim and Doug, I would assume it's the same for them. At least for me, it's an emotionally draining thing to preach. I cannot imagine, and if you ask my family, sometimes on Sunday afternoon, I dare say, take a nap. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Jesus has preached, he's driven out demons, he's healed multiple diseases, and then he gets himself up out of bed early in the morning when it's dark to do what? To pray. The priority that Jesus had of prayer in his life, he prayed often. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed when he fed the 5,000. He prayed when he raised people from the dead. He prayed before he preached. He prayed for Peter and his denial. He prayed on the cross for you. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. He is constantly praying. And if the sovereign, the Holy One of God needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Verse 36, watch the priority issues here. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They were pursuing him. Why were they pursuing him? And they found him, verse 37, and said to him, everyone is looking for you. I think they are implying that there's a great movement that's happening right now. And we've got an opportunity here, man. We've got a big opportunity. And Jesus says something that's shocking to them. Because he gives them his purpose and priority of ministry. Verse 38, he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also. For that is why I came. I came to earth to die for sinners, yes, but for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to do what? To testify to the truth, the gospel. Yes, people have physical needs, but the physical needs, and when Jesus Christ removed demons and brought about healing from disease was just an authentication of his preaching, it was not to be reversed. It was not supposed to be the healing ministry first and then the preaching. It was the preaching ministry and then the authentication of that preaching ministry through the healing ministry. And Jesus says, I'm not here to heal a bunch of people physically. I'm here to preach the gospel so that you could be healed spiritually. I want you to consider this. Is Peter's mother-in-law alive walking on earth today? 
No. Is the man who was demon-possessed walking on earth today? No. Are the scores of people that were outside of Peter's home that were healed walking on earth today? No. Was Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ, alive and walking on earth today? No. The healing that Jesus gave them was temporary to authenticate his ministry. But the ultimate healing is this. Lazarus is alive in heaven today because he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the answer. That's the question I have for you. So Jesus goes out in this healing ministry, and it's pretty wild in verse 39. He's going from town to town preaching, preaching this gospel message, and he teaching this gospel message and driving out demons. People are coming and hearing Christ. I end with verse 40 through 45. I want you to see the passion and kindness of Christ. The healing of this leper, because I think this whole story comes to fruition here in this one story. The leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper had a condition, and if you know anything about leprosy, it is this terrible disease. And this disease would rot you away, and you would eventually die. There were only four different cases of healing of leprosy in the Bible. Miriam, Moses' uh, sister, Nahum, in the Old Testament, there were the ten lepers, one of them got saved, and then this one. That's it. Leprosy would destroy you. And then also that leprosy would cause you to be cast out from the group. You could not come to church. You could not worship. You could not be with your family. You had to be an outcast. That was his condition. But watch the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moved with pity, Jesus does something that is just mind-blowing again. You didn't touch a leper. Because if you did, you were ceremonially unclean. Jesus touched this leper. Stretched out his hands and touched a man who's falling apart, decaying. And Jesus says, I will be clean. Powerful. Powerful. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Sometimes in leprosy, you would lose fingers and toes. Some would scratch off even their nose and their face. Their face would contort in terrible ways. Their skin would fall off. It was a gruesome the decay and the smell. It was disgusting. And immediately, the leprosy is gone. And he was made clean. That is your God. A God who is able and a God who is willing. Do you trust him today? The last part of this, and I'll close with this, We saw the condition of the leper, the compassion of Christ, the cleansing of the leper, but there's a charge. Jesus charged him in verse 43, sternly, sent him away at once and said, you go and do what was talked about in Leviticus, um, 
offered the cleansing in the um, tabernacle, the temple of the time, and speak before the priest so that you can rejoin the community, in essence. And so that would be a um, profession um, before these priests. But, verse 45, he, the new leper that had been healed, went out and began to speak freely about it, spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the town, but was in a desolate place where the people were coming to him from every quarter. I find it interesting in closing that um, the man was set apart and in a desolate place and Jesus was in the group. But now, because of Jesus' healing touch, the man is healed and he can come back to the group, but Jesus has now been placed in a desolate place. He changed places with the man. I was thinking as I was going through this passage this week, and I was just even talking to Amy about it this morning, how many people are being snookered by fake healers? I have not seen one person who claims to have a healing ministry keep their church open during COVID. Not one of them. I haven't seen one of them go and say, I can raise this COVID death to life. Not one of them. There was even a church that had a sign out front that said, our healing room is closed due to COVID. One pastor actually even said this, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. He can refuse it. (laughs) Jesus says, in this world you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So today, as we close, I want you to consider, are you amazed by Christ? Are you angered by Christ? Will you bend your knee to Christ? So, Father, I pray today that you would remind us that um, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, provided an amazing opportunity for us. He, an opportunity that we could never do. He, he brought us salvation through his, through his life, his perfect life. And he brought us salvation through his sacrificial death on the cross. And he brought us salvation from the fact that that tomb is empty. And he's praying for us right now at your right hand. And he is soon to come as a reigning king. So, Father, help us to see him as able. Help us to see him as willing. But help us to hear his message. A message of hope a message blood-bought by himself so that we can have a relationship with you. He was cast out in darkness and desolation for us so that we can be brought into light and family with you. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.